Welcome to our first Azure Cloud Talk. I'm one of the co-hosts, Alec Harrison, and I will be joined shortly by my friend, Brian Gorman, Microsoft MVP, MCT, and Microsoft Learn Expert. For our first episode, we'll be talking about ourselves, why you should care about our opinions and what we have to say, infrastructure as code, and infrastructure as code companies, getting started in programming, and wrapping it all up with development pipeline. Stay tuned for a great episode, and we'll see you on the other side. Welcome, everybody, and welcome, Brian. Brian, why don't you go first in introducing yourself and telling everybody at home why you care about our opinions on all things tech and whatever under the sun? <laughs> well, I'm Brian. Thanks for joining us. And uh, I have been a .NET developer for over 20 years, basically since it first was in beta back in 2001. I was playing around with VB.NET at that point. So I've been a developer for a long time, obviously switched to C-sharp very quickly after that. I've been MCSD certified since 2007. I did let all that expire, but then recently, 2019-ish, I re-upped that so that I could get an MCT and go into training, which is what I currently do mostly. I also do some consulting work. Azure consulting and technical training is my main services that I provide. Specifically, the training usually is around the Azure certifications. I have a number of them. I'm currently studying for three more for other contracts that I need them for. So it's really fun. I enjoy it. And I also do curriculum development as well. So that's me. You're also a part of a few Microsoft programs, right, Brian? Yeah, I guess I forgot to say I'm a Microsoft Learn expert and an MVP as well. One topic you did bring up is a Microsoft Learn Expert. That's a term I keep hearing more and more, and I'm not really sure what that is. Can you explain what that is a little more? A Microsoft Learn Expert is they have started in the Microsoft community for Microsoft Learn these rooms for learning experts. So there's, I don't know, something like 25 of us currently right now that host rooms. Actually, there's uh, one room that's done by Microsoft employees. It's on more of the AZ-104, AZ-700 admin side of things. So they, they've got a few MCTs that are actually Microsoft employees that are hosting in those rooms. My rooms are all around Azure development and just I have a room now that I'm going to start building up on just intro to programming, basically, and DevOps and a little bit on the fundamentals exams. So Azure fundamentals, data fundamentals and security fundamentals. But really, Dwayne Natwick is doing some security stuff out there. Tiago Costa is doing a lot of the same things I'm doing. So you don't have to be with me. You can apply to join a room and you can join my room and their room or other people's rooms. You can join as many as you want. And then it's just a Teams channel that you can ask questions in as you're going through learn modules. You know, some people are asking questions that are more specific to their work and that's typically okay, but it is, you know, kind of the understanding that we are volunteering our time. So if you're asking us to consult for you, that wouldn't really be fair. However, we will help you learn things for sure. Nice. Yeah, I've started to hear that a little bit more and more, and I'm not, I wasn't really super familiar with what that was or that program. I think one thing, you also help teach veterans coming out of the services, right? Sure. Yeah, so as part of my day-to-day, -day, one of my contracts I get to do through Opsgility actually, and is actually through Microsoft. So it's kind of like this roundabout way. I worked with Opsgility for a long time and great company that I got to work for. And then I got to subcontract from them to do this MSSA program. So the Microsoft Software and S Systems Academy 
And there's three, there's three paths. It is cloud application development, which is the typical one that I teach. However, uh, I may be doing a little bit of the server cloud administration coming up here, which is why, again, I'm going for some more certifications so that hopefully I, you know, have the official approval to train on them. And then uh, there's also a cybersecurity path. So what this is, is if you've been actively military and you're transitioning into retirement or just transitioning out of your service commitment, then as long as you're getting honorably discharged, you can apply to join the MSSA. It's a free program offered by Microsoft, 17 weeks long. You train four days a week with me or whoever else is training you. And then the fifth day on Friday, you spend with professional development, people from Microsoft and mentors from Microsoft who actually help you. Uh, and then there's one full week in the middle of just full professional development, resume, solidification, getting ready for your interview type of thing. Uh, you get a guaranteed interview with Microsoft. That does not mean you get a job. It means you get a chance to find a job. Um, if you don't get a job with Microsoft though, the MSSA program continues to place you uh, in front of their Microsoft partners. And you know, there's thousands of Microsoft partners. So hopefully the, the goal is, is that everyone would find gainful employment very quickly as, as much as is possible in our current economy, uh, especially for entry level. And you know, ultimately you would change your life really. I mean, you, you leave the military and then you have a full career as a civilian. You know, and a lot of a lot of the the military people have clearance already. So, like the cybersecurity path, this positions them really well. If you already have clearance, and even development path, really, and probably the server cloud as well. I mean, compliance stuff is always a big deal, right? So, so yeah. So look that up. Microsoft Software and Systems Academy. It it would also work if you uh, are already retired from the military and you were um, honorably discharged then you should still be able to be eligible to apply. And then you go through the whole application process. And if you get selected, you get to do it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that does sound pretty cool. I think my first time learning about it was actually from you uh, posting on LinkedIn. And I was like, wow, this is actually a really cool program that I think more people should be aware of because it's super cool to be able to give back and do that. And sometimes, you know, with Microsoft, as big of a company as they are, it's sometimes hard to know exactly what all programs they offer uh, unless you know somebody who's either partaken in it or is the one actually teaching it and pushing it along. So it's cool to have somebody I can point to or refer people to as it comes up in conversation. Yeah. So they have a website. So yeah, if you have questions, just reach out to me on LinkedIn or um, just look it up on LinkedIn. Look up the Microsoft Military Affairs. That's the people who are usually posting about it. And uh, they have you know links to their all the program information's out there. Maybe we can find a link later or something too, if we want. Yeah, I can for sure post a link in the podcast description. So if anybody listening wants to learn more about that, it'll be there. Now I'm going to go ahead and introduce myself. I'm Alec Harrison, a Microsoft MVP specializing in Azure. Uh, my career has kind of been all over the place. Uh, I started off first as a HoloLens developer. I was actually brought in as an intern to do data entry and uh, one of the deans at the college I was at said, hey, um, I heard you're a software developer. What if I give you a raise and you can play with HoloLenses for the next three months? And I was like, you could have probably kept the raise and I would have been more than happy. Uh, after that, I started doing software consulting at Source Allies in Des Moines, Iowa. Great place. Uh, that's when I first got introduced to Azure. And as a part of that was also led to help um, found the, or I guess revitalized the Iowa Microsoft Azure user group. And after that, you know, eventually I moved on, um, really enjoyed the job, 
but just got to the point where trying a new challenge. And uh, that's when I met Brian actually at my job at Grower's Edge. You're we talking about, you know, bringing him in because IMOG and uh, the Kansas City user group, they're both nonprofit user groups. Uh, I guess IMOG is, Kansas City isn't. And uh, we put on presentations over lunch. That's when I first got wrapped up with Brian is, you know, talking about having him on to do a presentation. So if you're ever looking for some free stuff, uh, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or follow me. You'll see me post about it all the time. That's when I also learned about Brian's training courses. And he actually helped teach me about 204 and uh, 104. And it's really awesome. We would learn how to do, you know, more practical things. We'd go a little bit deeper than just like the book materials. And I actually felt like I walked away from that knowing a ton of practical knowledge that I otherwise wouldn't like differences of blob storage, archive data, all that sort of stuff. And like, how do things actually work in the real world? It was super cool. Currently today I'm at Lunavi. We are a software consultant firm and we actually are a Microsoft partner. So we do things anywhere from, uh, we started with a, a green data center. So hundred percent wind powered and you know, over the past 10 to 20 years that has changed to being full software development all the way still to we have some data centers so we help out our clients anywhere in between which is a pretty cool and pretty crazy place to be uh, when you can help anywhere from on-premise you know hosting your own solutions to doing the cloud skills uh, after that i think as a part of being a part of two user groups i've started sp speaking at conferences um, cross paths with a few people and uh, actually eventually got my Microsoft MVP at February of this year. So still pretty new for me. I'm not as seasoned or not as cool as Brian yet, but hopefully over time we can get there <laughs> and I can bring everybody else along for the ride. So that's a little bit about me and we'll go ahead and roll into the, this podcast. So this podcast was kind of an idea Brian and I had um, talking about just we have these one-off conversations that kind of go off down rabbit holes. We also know different experts in the area. So we thought about, you know, as Azure is always constantly moving, changing, adapting, just having touch bases because we really enjoy chatting with each other and learning about new technology. And I feel like every time we walk away from our conversation, both of us feel like we've learned something. So the thought behind this podcast is Brian and I would kind of be the two hosts. We'll talk about it anything cool we're learning about doing messing with and uh, maybe some other getting started content as it comes up then that will roll into as we get to more complicated topics or we have other um, friends or colleagues that would like to join they can be more experts in that area and we can kind of bring the naive perspective which i try to do most of the time so we can ask those questions of like hey Example, teach me how to use AI or teach me how to do all these complicated things. And uh, cadence-wise, I don't know if we've quite solidified that yet. So it's still a lot of work in progress and like all things Agile, hopefully it'll get better and more polished as we continue to go. For today's topic, I think one place that's really good to start with anybody's cloud journey at all is, you know, talking about infrastructure as code, IAC if you see it written. Why do you need it? Why does the topic matter? How does that benefit you over, you know, on-premise solutions that you have today or any other solutions that could possibly be out there? Brian, how do you introduce infrastructure as code to somebody who's never used it before or even heard of it potentially? Yeah, so infrastructure as code is going to be something that 
uh, is kind of the crossover, uh, where if you're a developer, you're probably going to need to know some of it. And if you're an admin, you're going to need to know some of it. So it's kind of a common ground where we can all just get together and, and chat about stuff. And so up until a couple of years ago, we didn't have Bicep. So we had ARM, which is the Azure Resource Manager. Uh, so if you're not familiar at all with the underlying ecosystem of Azure, just a real quick 50,000 foot view, essentially there's API endpoints and everything has to hit those API endpoints in order to deploy things in Azure, right? So if you're running commands on the PowerShell, it's ultimately going to go through those API endpoints. If you're running, um, you know, if you're running a, a template, it's going to go through those, those endpoints. And basically what Microsoft is doing is taking that through the Azure resource manager to make that happen. Um, and so you can, you can hit that um, basically by doing any of that, th any of that stuff. So as I, I'm questioning, sorry, a little bit off the camera here a second. I'm questioning if that's accurate. Like if I display, if I, if I, if I'm talking accurately about that, but anyway, uh, let's get back on track. So, so anyway, Microsoft has this thing called the Azure resource manager and everything goes through that. And it's even exposed through API or through the CLI or through PowerShell or through templates. In the past, what we had to do was, you know, we would learn how to deploy a solution imperatively where we would say, go to PowerShell and, and, you know, AZ group create, or, you know, you can do that in bash as well. That's the Azure CLI actually PowerShell would be like new dash AZ group. It used to be AZRM group or something like that. They took the RM out. Thank God. Uh, and now we're just down to like new AZ group or whatever new group. I, I don't have a memorized. Nobody should memorize the commands you can look up. Uh, but you create the group by running that PowerShell command or the Azure CLI command, either in Bash or in PowerShell. And then you would say, okay, now deploy an app service. But first you had to deploy the app service plan, and then you deploy the app service. And so you do these imperative commands. And of course, the more imperative commands you create, the more error prone things can be, and also the more tedium that you have around doing that. So a template, what that allows you to do is say, instead of imperatively doing a bunch of commands, a template says, give me a declarative syntax that I can use that says, at the end of this operation, I want all of these things. And so we have our ARM template where we can create, you know, a storage account, a uh, resource group, you can uh, create the, the website and the web uh, farm, basically, which is the app service plan. And then you can even go to the level of, you know, pulling code out of a GitHub in a template or however you want to do that um, to, you can actually use a public repo endpoint that you would then manually have to refresh after you deploy it, or you can set up different things later that allow you to do automation through CICD, which I think we'll probably talk about in a little while. But uh, that template was JSON. And so it's very verbose and there's a couple of tricks with it. Uh, you can do things like depends on statements where you can say, you know, I can't create a website until I have, the, the web uh, app service plan, because there's nothing to put it in. Same thing, if I'm gonna create a VM, in order to create a VM, I need a network. So you first have to create the VNet. So you could create the VNet, set up all your subnets, do all that stuff, and then you would create the VM. Well, in a declarative syntax, your, your entire JSON has all of that information. So it needs to know which one to run after other ones. So you had that depends on syntax. And that gave you the ability to basically push, push and uh, push and play where you could just say, you know, AZ or, you know, whatever the command is to, to run the, you know, new resource group deployment in PowerShell or AZ group deploy, whatever it is in, in the CLI point to the template, and then you could deploy it. Now it also has parameters and variables and other things you have to learn. And then there's other conditional things like, well, do I want to have an orchestrator template, which links to three other templates to do things? 
and run them in order? Or do I have just a, a nested template, which is just becomes this gigantic long arm template? And so all of that put together gives me the ability to deploy basically whatever my stuff I need declaratively. And it was all done in JSON. So I kind of go over that stuff a little bit with the people I'm training. And then I say, if you've never used any templates at all, the easiest way to get started, at least to see some of the syntax, is to go into the portal, deploy a few things, and then literally just export the template from your resource. So create an app service in an app service plan, and then click on, scroll all the way down to the bottom on the left nav, and down at the very bottom usually is export template. And it will actually generate the ARM template that's required to make that website happen the way you have it. Now, the caveat to that is it's very specific to your resource group and your subscription. There's no variables for those types of things. So it's not really reusable, but it is a good solid starting point to say, oh, this is what the ARM should generally look like JSON-wise. And then you've got to go in and strip out subscription IDs and use like variables for that and stuff if you want to reuse it in the real world. But at least it gives you a starting point. So that's what I used to do. But now that we have Bicep, I actually recommend if you've never learned either one, if you know ARM, ARM is great. If you know Bicep, Bicep is great. It doesn't matter. They're, they're interchangeable. And in fact, you can run commands to translate one to the other now. Um, you can create a bicep template from an ARM template or an ARM template from a bicep template just by running a PowerShell command uh, very easily. So um, that should not be your main concern. But what I what I now tell people is if you've never learned either one, it's actually easier to start with bicep. Bicep is much more human readable and it's much more structure friendly. You don't have a bunch of JSON that's nested. It's all, it's, it's very uh, straightforward, much more like a coding language where you can have some structure and some syntax that you can follow and kind of trust. Um, and then you can put modules in place to import other biceps templates and things like that as well. Um, so it's really quite easy to use. Now, the reason I like it as well, uh, and maybe Alec will be able to pipe in here, is because I think learning biceps is a really good starting point because it gives you a multi-cloud position because you could easily move from bicep to terraform in my mind. Uh, being that Bicep and Terraform are very similar in how they're laid out. So I'll, I'll punt the ball back to Alec here and, and say, uh, you know, what do you think? Because you, you mentioned you're not a big fan of Terraform. Yeah, I think the other thing to touch on is like the multiple environments aspect of it that in the real world, almost every organization wants to do. Like it's all well and good, especially to go like click in a portal, deploy your infrastructure. Cool. It's there. What happens if a malicious actor comes in and just deletes all your stuff that you've tweaked just right? Or if you want a multi-environment strategy, which just about everybody does, you know, their dev test prod, um, your code and more making it more procedural allows you to spin it out, make it less of a manual task and more of like you can spin it up exponentially. Um, I think the biggest difference between ARM and Bicep, I did a talk on this at uh, DevOps Days Des Moines. And I showed uh, two different cars or two different vehicles. One was a car and one was an airplane and asked if people could like pro and con the difference. And it was essentially, they both had a Rolls Royce engine was the uh, end of the day kind of comparison. It was like, at the end of the day, arm and bicep to your point are still powered by arm. Like the engine is still the same. They just have drastically different use cases. Like, ARM is kind of more towards that computer language, 
for the API. It's not really human readable. It was a phase one, whereas BICEP starts to remove and abstract some things. So it becomes more human readable. It's more intuitive. It's closer to a real programming language. I know people might get upset by saying JSON is not a real programming language, but <laughs> it, it's just a structured of data at that point. So you can start getting more, um, do more functions, declare more things in BICEP, read it better. Files tend to be long, less, files tend to not be as long and they are not as wide. So you can easily see them in your viewer. Um, the autocomplete and predictive stuff in the bicep extension is getting better every day that arm doesn't have so you know every time you deploy a resource you have to specify an api version biceps able to autocomplete or guess what that is arm you have to go and google every single time unless you've just memorized and not all the apis are on the same cadence so to your point of like memorizing cli commands it's not worth the time because they change so much and they all change at different cadences you're going to google it every time unless you have some core stuff that you're doing very repeatedly. Um, I would also recommend Bicep. I do think it's a lot easier uh, to get into. It's a lot cleaner. It looks better. It's a lot simpler. I do a talk every now and again of deploying your first website to Azure using Bicep. I think the file is like six lines long, maybe seven. It's super small for what you need for like just a static site. And I think it helps demystify and scare people away, right? Like you hear infrastructure as code, people get freaked out and run away. And that is all this to tie back up. I think that's my biggest gripe with Terraform is when I first learned Terraform, it was being marketed and I think it still is, is cloud agnostic. At the end of the day, it's really not. I mean, it, it is in the sense that you can technically write Terraform and it will technically deploy to any cloud, but you will not take like the Terraform you wrote for Azure, be able to go, oh, AWS is getting us a cheaper price or vice versa, right? And just take that template, dump it right into AWS or vice versa. At the end of the day, you're still writing cloud specific scripts and you're also having to maintain state, which Terraform state files have been, in my opinion, really cumbersome and difficult to work with. When uh, I, I'm not a super big Terraform person, I've broken the state and have been unrecoverable and just had to like dump it when I'm playing on my own and uh, start again from scratch. And that's, that's difficult and painful. So what's a Terraform state file? What's that all about? Uh, Terraform has state behind the scenes. So it keeps track of your environment in a stateful component. So when you go to deploy, it keeps track of the state of your infrastructure. So if people make manual tweaks or if anything changes, it can actually get out of sync. And depending on what it is, it is not the best at recovering from the differences in state. Okay, so like when I deploy an ARM template, there's two different ways I can deploy it. I can do it as, um, oh, geez, I can't even remember off the top of my head now. Yeah, um, complete mode or incremental mode, I think, are the two modes. Yeah, those are that's correct. So, yeah, so you can do a complete deployment or an incremental deployment. And the incremental is the, the default. And the nice thing is I just push play and it will go out and it won't destroy my environment 
if something's out there, it just says, oh, I've already got this and moves on. If there's a further configuration, it says, oh, you've changed the configuration. Let's make sure we modify that a little bit. And it also leaves other things alone. Whereas the complete mode says, hey, uh, you're deploying to a resource group and you said you want these eight resources. I've got 15 other resources in this resource group. And it says, so they're not in your template, so we're going to delete them. So that kind of helps with configuration drift a little bit and such. And so um, so what I'm, what I'm gathering is then that's kind of what Terraform state is for, is to also kind of discern what your environment looks like at the time of deployment. But it's supposed to have maintained that itself rather than be just testing the cloud as it goes. Does that seem right? Yeah, it's supposed to keep track of that and keep track of the configurations you have there as well. Um, and that's ultimately where they sell you the product itself. It's, it, it's something you're supposed to maintain and keep track of, but if it gets tweaked, altered, messed up in any way, it is a non-trivial process to get it back in alignment and get it working again. Because at the end of the day, technically, uh, technically isn't the right word. Bicep and, and uh, arm are stateless languages. There, you can make the argument that there is technically state there because when if you go deploy a long-running resource, it'll be in provisioning state or you know in created state, all those. As far as the end user is concerned, though, it's stateless. You don't have to worry about what your resource group is sitting at for the most part. Whereas Terraform introduces state and still is a proprietary like language of itself. That's where I have qualms is because I, I've asked people why they've adopted Terraform and they talk about how, well, we're, we're cloud agnostic then. We can just go to any cloud. No, you really can't because you're still writing, you know, resource specific files to say, hey, for Azure, I'm going to use an app service plan. For uh, AWS, I'm going to be using EC2. Totally different things. They're defined differently. You can't just say one is the equivalent of the other. And to be fair to Terraform, cloud providers do this on purpose. They want you to learn their specific cloud to deploy their stuff because there's a stickiness there once you get your infrastructure there. But to say your whole market, one of your marketing sticks is that you're cloud agnostic. It, it's difficult to truly be cloud agnostic and you're still learning a proprietary language. That's where if people ask, I tend to push more towards Pulumi. It's a infrastructure as code framework. They still use our language. They still use state files and that's how they also make their money is they will you can pay them to manage your state file for you like Terraform does. So they'll host it and manage it in their cloud so you don't have to deal with it. The thing I like more about them though is they will allow you to write your state or your infrastructure's code in C Sharp, JavaScript, I think Python, a bunch of different languages and they keep coming out with more every day. But in my mind, that's an infrastructure's code platform meeting you where you are versus Terraform where you're learning a proprietary language for a proprietary product that's introducing a bunch of things. Yeah, Pulumi is introducing state. However, they'll meet you where you are so you can do everything in C-sharp. They're 
you can write one template and maybe you can do this in Terraform. I haven't seen it done well. You can write one template in Bloomy to deploy to multiple clouds. So you can have conditionals that say whatever cloud you're deploying to and do that in a single template. So if your application is truly going to be multi-cloud, you can have a single deployment pipeline that truly spans multiple clouds in the same file. That will say, you know, if AWS do this, if Azure do, else do this. Um, it is super cool. I don't know, again, maybe you can do that in Terraform. In practice, what I've seen is people build their AWS pipelines and they build their Azure pipelines and they're two separate files, two separate state files, two separate everything. That might just be a where I've seen people practice different, but I think it's super cool to have a language that you know meets you where you are as far as programming language wise, and then you can change and have true multi-cloud in a single pipeline in a single file. Nice. So with Pulumi, am I? I'm. It's, it's a SaaS product, right? I'm paying a certain monthly fee to have a certain amount of storage out there for my pipelines, but I have the advantage then of push and play on either cloud versus having to have separate pipelines for each one. Is there an option with Plumi to do it off of their servers? Because what about like compliance and, and like different things where maybe I want to use Plumi, but I don't want to put my stuff on their cloud? Yeah. It, it's the same as Terraform. That's how you manage their, that's how you manage the state file. I believe where it's different is Plumi by default will manage your state file, whereas Terraform by default assumes you're managing your own state file, but they both have offerings for the alternatives. So if you want to manage your own state file, I believe it's free for Plumi. And I, I was talking to a guy at a Plumi meetup and he was talking about one of the people who work at Plumi and goes, you know, we manage our own state files. How do you guys make money off of us? And he's like, we, we don't. That's where we try to make our product that much better is they're open source, they're a SaaS product, but if you're managing your own state files, they're free. It's an open source project that you can just use. That's awesome. So everybody switch to Plumi and just support the heck out of them. <laughs> they, they also, I think I'm looking at their languages. Terraform has their own proprietary language. Bloomy today supports Python, TypeScript, JavaScript, Go, C Sharp, F Sharp, Java, and YAML. So I feel like a modern developer, there is not a single language that I just listed that they would not have some familiarity with. It's a bold statement. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody's going to be like this very weird stack that I've never heard of. I'm like, okay, you're, you're right. Yeah. I, I want to write my tariff or my uh, Pulumi templates in cow. Have you ever seen cow? Well, I have not. It's just a bunch of moo, moo. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> there was a site uh, a while ago. I don't know if it's still out there. It was uh, 99 bottles of beer in the wall written in a bunch of different languages. And you could just select the language that you wanted to see. And cow was one of them. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. That's, that's my biggest hang up with it. I think Pulumi is also built open source. So if you wanted to write your own cow extension, you could like the code is out there, go build your own provider. I don't think there's any reason why you couldn't or build your own support. 
there's also IDE support that I don't know if Terraform has today. And I believe Pulumi, with the whole AI craze, they have also jumped on the AI like auto completion. I've been told, so like the chat GPT, you can tell it like what you need in Azure and it'll write you a Pulumi template. I've been told like Microsoft says with their pair programming or all their co-pilots that they announced to build, like the human is definitely still the driver. So you should never just ship whatever it does, but it's okay. a great starting point to your point of if I'm trying to learn how to deploy, I don't know, a if I come to it and say, okay, I need an app service plan and app service, you can type into the Bloomy chat and say, hey, give me an app service and app service plan, and it'll auto-generate it. And then you can be you can validate it, but then you're not doing all of the legwork of, you know, well, I gotta go and find the template and I gotta go read the doc. The, the docs kind of come to you at that point, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it's it's a pretty cool tool. I would recommend looking at it if you're debating cloud agnostic. I think Bicep, I think the other reason people have adopted Terraform in the past was I, ARM was not great. I think you kind of glazed over that. <laughs> Um, there is a strong reason why Bicep is around and how much better it is, I think. I don't think I can state how much better Bicep is, like, improvement-wise on top of ARM. Like, anybody who's written an ARM template from scratch for a complicated system will tell you that file is, you know, three monitors wide and thousands of lines long. And Bicep is just so much better on top of that. When you need to do depends on, you can reference things like variables. Uh, you can pass stuff in the same. It's just so much cleaner. You get IDE support. And I think that was a turnoff for a lot of organizations was you're learning a proprietary uh, thing. It's JSON, but it's you know proprietary in the sense that you need to know how it works in Azure. And it's difficult. Bicep, I think, removes some of the difficultness of it which then leads you to your point of, I would say it is probably similar to Terraform. It's probably similar to Pulumi, depending on, you know, I would say Bicep is C-sharp-S. Like, there's a lot of similarities, but you don't have, like, your curly braces on every line. You don't have your semicolons. But C-sharp is slowly doing away with that, too. <laughs> which sucks. <laughs> Dude, there's nothing worse. There's nothing worse that has happened for me as a trainer of intro programmers than these top-level statement reduction code things that they're doing where you don't have to actually have a namespace declared and you don't have to have the class declared. You can just say console.writeline and your program just works. It, yeah. is, it is great for a developer who's been around for 15 years and you're like, this stuff is syntactically correct and I can understand what it's supposed to do. But when you start adding methods and now you've got a line of code that's supposed to be executed, calling a method and then right below it, you've declared a method just kind of randomly, uh, or maybe it's down below and you've got even more lines of code above it or whatever. The structure is so less certain at this point. So like as a programmer who's just trying to learn C sharp, it's a nightmare because they're having a hard enough time figuring out what it means to pass a variable to a method. And now we've got 
no structure to, to lean on. And it's just, so, I mean, you can turn it off. You can say, you know, in, in .NET 7 and better, they've at least now given the option to turn it off. In .NET 6, there was no option to turn it off. So it's just like all of a sudden you, you create a console and it's got no top level, it's, you know, or what I think it's, I can't remember if it's in, include top level statements means that you have to, you know, that it's just using the statement right away. So I think it's do not include top level statements or something like that. You check mm -hmm. it and it lets you not have the freedom to do that. So you get the structure that a C-sharp programmer is used to, especially a C-sharp programmer that started with C-sharp, you know, one <laughs> and has been around yeah. since then, um, or a new programmer who just doesn't understand the flexibility that is offered because they need the structure to be able to, you know, you, you're asking them to basically go uh, cave diving um, without a map at that point, at least give them a map, right? And so they can find, you know, I'm supposed to be in this tunnel and this tunnel goes over here. But if I don't want to use that one, I can go down this path and then take a different tunnel where now you just got like, hey, here's a here's a bunch of caves. Go have fun. Right. <laughs> so that's a that's a great topic. I mean, I still remember in college when we learned C and then Java. That was the curriculum at Iowa State at that time. And we. C was daunting it was pretty simple as far as the stuff we were doing there wasn't a lot of boilerplate like these down machine code you had to compile the code it was nice because from a conceptual standpoint you saw how the whole process worked right like i wrote code i had to then run a command to compile my code and then i could run the output on my computer right when we got to java there was like all this extra crap like boilerplate that was like public static and void main blah 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 do your thing and we'd ask the professor, like, what is all this garbage? And he'd be like, well, you got to wait till you're like 300 or 400 level classes before we really dig into this. But just FYI, this is how you write a Java program. And just know that you need that. So I can hmm. see from a, like, I don't want to say elementary, but like from a very, very beginner, like if you look at tools like Scratch or other very basic intro programming stuff. I can see how that could help because it's like, I just want the computer to do a thing. I, I'm not, I'm not training from the sense of a trainer to get this as a real job. I'm doing it to learn the fundamentals of programming. I want to know how if statements work. I want to know how for loops work. I want to work like, I'm just going to be doing trivial kind of, um, oh, what's the word novelty like thing. They're not, I'm not going to be writing the next Facebook. I'm going to be just doing, you know, I want my program to count one to 100 and do the whole fizz buzz. Count, count one to 100 backwards and print out 99 bottles of beer on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Like trivial things yeah. like that. And I could see how that could be difficult going from like, I'm learning it in the sense of I need this for a job or learning it from the sense of, I just want to learn some basic programming things especially when you think about like however many years of technical debt organizations have around, you know, if I learned C sharp the new way where there's no includes, no brackets, like super simple. When I jump into a real project that's running, you know, it's not a familiar in today day and times to see .NET framework. Right. Like you probably even find VB at places like <laughs> you'll jump in and be like, what is all of this? 
And you're like, yeah, sorry, you didn't learn that because you learned the new age stuff. Yeah, instead of instead of uh, instead of the brackets, you get the um, the start and the end statements, right? End function or end <laughs> method or whatever it is. I can't even remember. It's been so long since I've used it, but you had to declare variables by using the dim keyword, like dim something as integer versus yeah. int x. You would do like dim dim x as integer or something like that. Fully verbose. Uh -huh. Yeah, so I mean that stuff's not going away until it's no longer supported and people aren't using it, right? Well, and I think in my mind it looked like it was an attempt to kind of be, and this is me totally speculating. I have no proof of this, of being more Python esque, because yes. like Python was the, and I think it still is, is the beginner's programming language of choice. It's very good at being an intro tool, and you can use Python for just about anything. Whether it's the best tool or not, I think is a different discussion. But the fact that it's versatile enough to do, you know, machine learning and AI all the way to building a CMS, like content management system, to building a web app, like you can do that all in Python. I think that's why a lot of people use it is because it's a very low bar of entry to get in. And then you can use it for just about anything. I think that's what the idea was behind a lot of that stuff. And it's cool because it's helping bring people into the Microsoft ecosystem. I do think there's a transitory period there though of like you're learning intro to programming because you want to learn intro to programming. And then there's the transitory of like, if you truly want to stay in the Microsoft ecosystem of, okay, now we need to worry about more mature apps. And I don't know what that transition looks like. Yeah. I, I'm I'm completely on board with your speculation because you see Python so heavily in the data science world at this point, and uh, you've got Jupyter notebooks and you've got um, different different really low barrier of entry ways to do data science with Python, and yeah, it doesn't have a lot of the structure that a C Sharp or a Java has or requires, which allows you a little bit more freedom. So now, if we make our C Sharp a little more Python esque, as you said. Uh, we end up with, uh, oh, I can just write C-sharp today too because I don't need to worry about whether or not I actually declared my namespace. It's just done before me behind the scenes. Magic, right? I was even having a conversation with a coworker. Um, I think it was just yesterday. We were talking about moving some .NET framework apps to modern.NET, whether that's 6 or 8, depending on. We were skipping 7 because we wanted to be on an LTS version. And we made, he made some comment about, you know, .NET Framework, everything had to be manually and explicitly done. Even in modern .NET, there's certain configurations that you have to like explicitly turn off because it's kind of an anti-pattern. But back in the day, you could have totally done it because it was just a configuration. You didn't know it was an anti-pattern, you just did it. So one thing we talked about like is setting up some performance metrics because like we don't know Going from an old, old version of .NET Framework to a new version of .NET, there could be things that, like, by default are turned off that could be better or worse for performance, depending on how we're doing things, that we just don't, we honestly don't know, because there's tech dead and just moving things from that long ago. Things shift, standards change. It could, and, and very well, it could have been a standard at the time of, this is how you do this. It's just the world has changed. and. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that reminds me of a tool called Yarp. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, so, it's their, it's kind of their go-to uh, routing 
router? No, so Yarp is uh, is actually a, a thing you can use to migrate a .NET framework project to a common .NET Core project at this point. And so ultimately, um, what it does is it actually shims the calls. So like you can migrate piece by piece. And yeah, so it's, it's uh, um, I think they're actually, it's called Yarp. I don't know. That's all I know. There's there's a couple of people that have been talking about it out in the circuits at con at conferences. Um, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's uh, it stands for yet another reverse proxy. It, yeah, there you go. I think I was talking to somebody about it yesterday. I think the migration assistant helps you with that. Hmm. So it uses the fig strangler pattern to try to move you off legacy code. So I think. The migration assistant, if your code is written in such a way, which it probably isn't, that you could just straight up move from .NET Framework to Modern, it'll do that for you. But if it doesn't do a direct move, it's doing what you're talking about of it, puts a facade, and I think it uses Yarp as the proxy for it. Okay. And that goes in between your basically two apps running in parallel at that point. So you can still have your legacy services and API, and then you can flip over as you incrementally deliver, you know, agile, uh, incrementally deliver new things. You can then call the new service instead of the old one, and you can have your facade kind of be the traffic manager of those. Nice. And it looks pretty cool. I've never done it in practice. I've been to a few talks where people talk about it, but that's one thing we've talked about. I had somebody push back though, and I don't know of, instead of Yarp, why don't you use something like Nginx or some other proxy system? Hmm. Um, I didn't really have a good answer for that other than like the migration assistant, I think is built in to use Yarp by default. Cause right. That's so I would think like with Nginx, you'd have to write, you'd have to, you still have to do stuff yourself, right? Yeah. With I the migration so. assistance, you're pushing a button and if it can't automatically convert it, as you said, you've got a, a route to your API that basically runs the old code. Right. And it's less work you then have to do because it's already built in there. And so you have to figure out, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a web dev by practice. Like I build websites. I don't know how networking works all the time, especially at that low level of building proxies and stuff. It keeps it out of something I have to think about. It's just already there. It'll be packaged right. together. I don't have to worry about setting up the proxies and all that. It's just in a solution where this guy was more of a, you know, typical network engineer, I think background or DevOps code, like, okay, you deal with networks more than I do. You probably know how to speak intelligently to this. I don't. <laughs> hmm. but, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. It, it, it's cool. I'm curious on how the plan will go or how it works in practice. I've never, never used it in practice before, so I've just seen it in demos. But yeah, we didn't cover CI/CD when we got into infrastructures code. <laughs> so I think up until this point, we've discussed infrastructures code, kind of the different providers of that, how we got into some intro into programming, C sharp, and now I think we're back to pipeline. Cool. So yeah, so the different pipeline things that we could use, you know, you got GitHub Actions, you've got GitLab Actions, um, you've got Azure DevOps pipelines. 
So kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, I've never, I've never worked with any of this stuff before. Where should I start? Right. And when I'm training people, how do I, how do I talk through, you know, different things now? It's really cool because Azure has actually baked in now CICD to a lot of the services where you can literally just push a button, connect your account, and you can do some stuff. So, for example, if I have a website, you know, you do Alex, you know, deploy my first website stuff that he was talking about earlier. And at the end of the day, as part of the deployment in the actual portal, you hook up your GitHub and you basically point to the repo. And it creates an action, puts the action into GitHub, does all the secret management for you, and uses the publish profile essentially to publish to Azure. So you don't even have to create uh, service principles or anything like that if you're just going to do code into an existing service. So that's actually super easy to do now, and it works really well from Azure, and it gives me a, a YAML pipeline. But I don't really know YAML. What do I do? This is where I actually go and say, you know what, it's actually a little easier uh, in some ways to learn YAML using Azure DevOps. Azure DevOps is much more clicky, meaning I have to click and drag and do a lot of stuff to get things to work. So it's a little bit harder to work with than GitHub in general, but it's also more drag and drop. In fact, they still have the classic editor that you can literally drag and drop, or basically, you know, you just create your pipelines by selecting the things you want. You don't have to necessarily know any YAML and it just works. The cool thing about DevOps is, is that you can go in there and once you've created your pipeline using the drag and drop tools that are available, you can review the YAML that it would have been generated. So now, like I said, when you export a template, you can learn a little bit of ARM and the Azure DevOps template, you can see what the YAML should have been. And then if you really want to get crazy, you can create another pipeline and take the YAML and start working with it. Now, YAML is not my favorite language. I feel about YAML about like Alec feels about Terraform, I think. It's a tool, it works, but I do not like white space delimiting. I do not like the way that the two spaces have to work. Um, if you have your tabs versus spaces camp, um, if you don't have your, your, if you're using tabs and you don't have it set to equal two spaces, you could be in really big trouble with YAML right? Because they basically use a two-space indent to do a lot of different things and it can get really... And, and, and what's tricky is once you're off, you're off. And it's, you know, you might get an error that says error on line 47, but the error is actually way up on line 22. Uh, and you just don't know. So it's, it can be painful. Um, and then GitHub's getting a little better too at, at, at like letting you type and say, I would like a, a deployment and you click on it and it puts the YAML in for you. So maybe that's even getting better now too, where you can say, well, I can learn it this way even as, as well. Um, but there's, I mean, there's a lot to learn when it comes to pipelines. You got to learn about, well, what agent am I using to build this on? How does that work? Who's hosting the agent, right? So I've got, I've got to either set up infrastructure to have my own build machines so I can have a stateful build machine that has maybe some third-party tools that I need to run every time I'm running a build. Or I can just use hosted by Azure or by GitHub or GitLab or whoever to actually run the pipeline on their machines and then generate the artifacts. And do I put the artifacts into a repo or do I put the artifacts directly as a deployment? Um, you know, do I want to have you know versioning on these things that I can go back and say I need to get the artifact that was deployed last week uh, and review it? Or um, you know, obviously you want your artifacts to be immutable. 
So that's another consideration. You don't want people to be able to tamper with an artifact after the build, because that would be really bad. Now you've got some custom thing that somebody injected manually after the build into an artifact and it's working. And then the next time it rebuilds, it, things broken and you don't know why. So there's lots of considerations on these things. Yeah. And I think it also helps with, uh, you know, the adoption of agile across organizations, you know, it gets you closer to that single work process of getting something out to production. You don't have to worry about if you tweak the infrastructure, if you have your pipeline set up, you just go and ship your code. You just go and ship whatever it's there. Every time you commit, it'll run your, you know, for example, test to make sure you didn't break anything or package it up and ship it. So you don't have to call off because you have a new flavor of whatever you just built. Uh, it's, it's a pretty cool system. I, I personally did learn on Azure DevOps to begin with. I didn't learn YAML and it was just because my organization at that time was using Azure DevOps and they had the UI on, I, I think is the right word. I don't know. It was difficult to deploy in, in YAML. So we didn't really get that choice, but it was nice because I went from, in the past I wrote a really basic, I think it was called Bamboo, which I think, I don't know if it's still a thing, but it was self-hosted at my company. And then we used Azure DevOps, which was using the UI as a total novice beginner. It was real nice to be able to just search like what I wanted it to do and click and put it in and order it and get parallelization. So we could even have jobs run in parallel without much thought or moving things around. I've actually used that a couple of times to figure out how to declare jobs and things in different syntax. When I was in YAML, I went back to the UI. I'm like, I want this to run in parallel and it does some indentation magic or, you know, job naming magic, to figure out how to do that. It's a great tool to start with. If you've never built a pipeline before, I, I think to your point too, Brian, GitHub is getting more user friendly. I, I went to deploy my website for Gatsby, for example, thinking, uh, I tried to write a blog post on it. It's like, oh, it's going to be this long thing. It's going to be fun. It'll be content. It'll be something I can put that I did and people will get help from it. I think it was like three click. It was actually a very anticlimactic blog post because Gatsby <laughs> had an ARM template. They're like, or a YAML template for you. They're like, here, put this in. I don't even think I had to put in a GitHub action. I think it like was automated behind the scenes to pull it and put it in my repo. It was some sort of crazy magic that took me like no time. I clicked a few buttons and then I was able to deploy my website. It was insane. I think the only thing I had to do was grab some Azure creds. So I did AZ login. I think I copy and pasted a few things and then I was deploying an entire pipeline for my Gatsby website. And it still works on that today. I, I've never touched it. I'll be honest, I don't really know 100% how it works because <laughs> it just worked. And I was like, oh, this is anticlimactic. Nice. I better go find something else to blog about. <laughs> won't be content I'm putting out, but I think, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm weird. I'm a little less, YAML isn't the best. It, it white language delimited or white space delimited languages are difficult, but I don't know if I really have a preference on CICD runner. I don't know. Infrastructure as code. I do a little bit, but I don't know. What about you, Brian? Like, do you, 
do you have a strong bias on any of them? Is there pros and cons that you know of? I don't, I don't, I, I guess full, full disclosure, I've been on a bamboo self-hosted instant. I've been on Azure DevOps and I've done GitHub actions in my free time because I don't build my own stuff and get in Azure DevOps personally. So it's kind of my experience and I can tell you why you should, should or should not use GitLab other than I think some companies like GitLab because they pay to self-host it. Other than that though, like I think they're all the same for the most part. Maybe they're not. Like I don't have a strong affinity towards any of them. Yeah. I think that they're they're all very similar. It's just gonna depend on what your team knows and what you guys want to learn or invest in as a, a long term strategy. You know, there's other tools, Octopus Deploy, um, Jenkins, so other build agents that you can do as well on top of these things, but um yeah, I don't know that. I don't know that you're going to escape YAML. Yeah, like I think YAML is going to be part of your life if you start doing DevOps pipelines. It's just part of what it is. I would have preferred JSON. Like I just feel like JSON with brackets allows me a little more freedom to not necessarily be stuck at two spaces. So even if I accidentally indent four spaces and I put another bracket, it knows it should have been the next thing or whatever. Um, that's me. Um, again. I've used structured programming languages my whole life. So, um, and I'm not a, you know, not a big, I mean, not a big, you know, just do, do whatever you feel like you do and it just works type of thing. I, I need, I'm, I'm a very literal person. I need very literal layouts, right? And you can get that with YAML. It's just, it's very easy to make a two space mistake that you can't see as a human as easily in my mind. So that's my one thing about it. What's interesting, you mentioned credentials. So uh, tying this back, we were talking about templates earlier, and now we're talking about actions. So certainly there's going to be a team out there that says, well, I would like to create like a volatile environment. How do I go about doing that, right? So GitHub and Azure DevOps both allow you to integrate with your, um, with your Active Directory at Azure. You can create service principles. And then you can have permissions around that service principle to actually execute commands in the environment in a specific resource group. So now you can bring your ARM template or your bicep template into your pipeline as part of your deployment strategy. So now I can actually deploy into my resource group an entirely brand new app service web app that hosts code from this repo and push that button and not only did I deploy the code, I've actually deployed the entire environment, which is a really interesting thing to do when you're trying to test something out. Maybe uh, you maybe you are you know wanting your devs to see what this would look like in the web. And so rather than have everybody sharing a test web, and then every time someone builds, it changes to that latest version of their code, they have everybody kind of has their own little playground where you push play and you get a brand new version of your app with the code you just wrote. And the problem you're going to run into if you do that, which isn't necessarily a problem. It's just, you know, somebody's got to clean that up, right? So you have to figure out some sort of automation behind the scenes to delete those resource groups after a day or something. So you're not going to end up with thousands of websites just kind of hanging, dangling there that nobody's using anymore. Because uh, I don't, I mean, you could do a complete deployment, I guess, on uh, your templates and say, you know, every day run this complete deployment that wipes out everybody's test resource group or something. Um, Maybe that would be an easy way to do it too. Yeah, that that's a really cool example. I've seen that 
think Azure static sites allow you to deploy to, they call them environment, and app services have slots. So the challenge there is to figure out, to your point, how to clean them up, how to wire everything. But theoretically, with infrastructure as code you, and pipelines, you could deploy pull request specific environments that are just there long enough to review the PR and make sure that nobody posts anything. It, if you're right. real worried about, you know, maybe our automated testing isn't the greatest, or maybe we're touching a component that's like difficult to really see what it looks like or behaves differently in the in the web than it does locally. It's a cool way to do that. And to your point, like there's not a lot of overhead to do that just because of the tools that are there. Um, and then, yeah, you can have processes that maybe once the PR is merged, you tear everything down. It could be like an, a complete action. I think you can do that. Uh, it would just be when your action is merged back into the main pipeline. Yeah. So, okay. So yeah, what you're talking about is the different triggers on the pipelines themselves. Yeah. So this is one area where I also think GitHub wins over Azure DevOps simply because it's easier to do a pull request trigger in GitHub than it is in Azure DevOps. It's, it's not impossible to do in Azure DevOps, so you can do it in both, but in GitHub, it's literally on, you know, you just put pull underscore request as the trigger key and versus push, you know? Um, so now it's, if I open a pull request on this branch, then, or you can do filtering, you know, this subset of branches, maybe you have like different teams and each team has a different build. And so um, they're pushing to a subset of, you know, of GitHub or whatever. And if they put push on that branch, then only on that branch and then specific wildcards or whatever after that, it's pretty crazy. It's really easy to do in GitHub. In, in Azure DevOps, you can do things where you have like multiple pipeline splits, um, but you've got to push a lot of buttons and wire things up correctly. And then it's like, well, when I run a pull request, is it going to run both of my pipelines, my production and my pull request? Or does it just run the pull request? And how do you prevent that from happening? Um, whereas GitHub is literally not possible because you've already said pull requests. And so that's the only one that's going to run. So it's just, in my mind, GitHub wins that battle by like light years. Um, yeah, that's fair. The other thing that can be a pro or a con, depending on how you're discussing it, is Azure DevOps really favors two pipelines. It really wants you to have like your build and stage pipeline and then a release pipeline which right. you can do a lot of the same functionality in GitHub, but I've been at a complete, a very, uh, what's the word I want to look for? Maybe red tape organization where they really wanted, you know, somebody not on the product team to confirm merges because there was this old SD, like mm -hmm. software quality and life cycle thing where they said basically somebody not on the product team had to approve merges to production because, you know, somebody could have screwed up production or a malicious person. Granted, we had pull requests in place. We had a lot of things that maybe back in the day weren't there that are today, mm -hmm. but we still had to have a business person come in and Azure DevOps was pretty smooth with that. We just put their email as an approver. They would get a link that say, hey, the product team is ready to merge code, uh, click this link, and then they'd get an approve or reject button. Like, load them into Azure DevOps with just an approve or reject button. You, yeah. Yeah, so that's the one that Azure DevOps wins by yeah. far. Like, you can do that in GitHub, but, like, 
GitHub is still catered very heavily to a developer experience. When I tell you, like, this guy wasn't a developer at all. He was a business person. He didn't really know the tools. He would occasionally go into our backlogs to just kind of see what we were doing. But, yeah, it took him straight to the place to get approval rejected. For the most part, it was a rubber stamp kind of approval. But right. that experience was pretty seamless. I think the other thing, Azure DevOps has a bunch of weird tools uh, that, maybe weird isn't the right word, but it's the... What's the phrase? The jack of all trades, but master of none is better than a master of one. Um, Azure DevOps has a bunch of things for like, you know, if you want to do backlog grooming estimation there, if you want to do your retros there. I think they also have backlogs beat pretty heavily in Azure DevOps as well. If you want to have like hierarchies and stuff that I don't think GitHub has today. GitHub's really great if you want to use like a Another alternative I'd say is like Trello for backlog tracking. If you don't really sure. want a ton of hierarchy and it's just more of like your sticky note, like moving across the board. But right to do do yeah 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 pretty much. It, well, you can make more columns than that too. But it like I've seen at organizations where they go really deep in automated metrics for like backlog for like epic feature epic feature backlog items and they go and export all that and the run weekly, daily metrics or whatever. Mm -hmm. Azure DevOps has them be, or has it be, and I say them, but they're both owned by Microsoft at this point. But I think that's what's holding some people back is that they have this tool today. Maybe holding back isn't the right word either. That's what keeps people in Azure DevOps or makes them adopt GitHub is they have this all-encompassing tool that works for just about everything when you're running an agile team, as far as like reporting out, doing retros, doing all this, it can be self-hosted. GitHub can be self-hosted too, but it can be if you're wanting to be, you know, I think you brought that up in a different discussion of if you, uh, it was the Bloomy versus Terraform. If you don't want to have, you know, your information out there or whatever, you can host it, pay to host it yourself. Um, and I think it's just one of those things that like people look at it as a one-stop shop and it does a pretty good job at just about everything. Um, but all that to say, like if you're getting started somewhere, I would say GitHub is kind of simpler. So if you're learning on your own and whatnot, I would probably push people towards GitHub. GitHub is also really huge in the open source community. So if you ever wanna to contribute to open source projects, those will, I think exclusively get live in GitHub. The build runners may not be uh, GitHub ones. Like some people use Jenkins, some people use, you know, pick your flavor, but the code itself is probably in GitHub. So when you're, we're talking pull requests and whatnot, you're probably gonna end up there anyway. But. Yeah, so, so just to add to that, it is possible to build stuff with Azure DevOps and just use a GitHub repo. So you can link that together kind of in a hybrid scenario as well. So like Alex saying, I think a lot of teams are going to be leaning towards actually having their code in GitHub just because of the tools around pull requests and all that stuff. And then, but you can still have pipelines and still do things with Azure DevOps now, which is really cool as well. Yeah. You can even think, I think you can even link backlog items and pull requests across the two systems if you want to. Yeah, you can, you can actually close tickets in GitHub or, or close tickets in Azure DevOps by, you know, completing a pull request in GitHub and it'll send a, 
the link over to, to close the ticket for you, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty neat if you have strong opinions on one or the other. If you that way you can use both and nobody's more nobody's upset in the organization. Yeah. Nice. And I think the biggest cool. caveat of everything we've discussed up until this point is automation is your friend. The the less stuff you have to do incrementally you know, the less you have to screw up, essentially. <laughs> right. And the more, like, deep breaths you can take when you push play to, to go to production, you know. So maybe in a future episode we can talk about, like, deployment strategies, where we go into, like, using the slots you mentioned and things sure. like that. Yeah, sounds good. Um, kind of give you that peace of mind as a developer that you didn't, you didn't, you don't get the, I always like to say, you know, uh, when I'm training on Git, you know, when you run like a rebase and you start seeing the history getting rewritten, all of a sudden it's like the cops pulled you over. You get that feeling in your <laughs> stomach. You're like, what have I just done? Did I do it right? Uh, the less we feel that as a developer, the better, right? And with automation, you can definitely eliminate that. Yeah, feeling. for sure. Or at least feel like it's not your fault. So you don't have to feel that way. <laughs> Somebody else messed it up, right? Just kidding. Worked on my machine. Right. <laughs> That always works on yeah. my machine. That will never go away, even with containers, right? Awesome. Cool. Well, I'm going to pause the recording. I think we have enough for our first podcast, maybe two. And uh, at the next one, I think you left a little breadcrumb. We'll talk about maybe deployment strategies and who knows where we'll go from there. Yeah. Cool. Sounds awesome. Yeah. This Thanks, Brian. Yeah. A quick special thank to Paula and his song, The Computer Game Kid. And a thank you to you, the listener. Thank you for joining us today on Azure Cloud Talk. We hope our conversations not only provided you with insightful perspective, but also helped you illuminate the vast potentials of the cloud. Remember, the cloud is the limit when it comes to innovation and growth. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with those who you think can benefit from it. We'll be back next week with another exciting exploration of Microsoft's Azure Universe. In the meantime, if you have any questions, feedback, or topics you'd like us to cover, feel free to reach out to us via LinkedIn or our social media channel. Stay curious, keep learning, and until next time, this is your host signing off from the Azure Cloud Talk, your gateway to the cloud. Take care, and happy cloud journey.